Welcome, everyone, to the Punisher podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial voice of the Marvel Cinematic Community. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Hello, Pete. Hey, what's with the new crazy? The Punisher podcast by Fantastic Geek for episode 202, Fight or Flight, is sponsored by the Tides Motor Inn. Now with new do-it-yourself adjoining rooms. Thanks, Debbie. (laughs) Oh, Debbie, indeed. Pete, so glad to be talking more Punisher, particularly this weekend. We did Punisher two days ago, Star Trek Discovery yesterday, and glad to be back here in the MCU in uh, what continues to be an early, though fantastic, season of Punisher. Absolutely. Uh, Just aching to talk about all these episodes with our listeners. Take us to the recap, Matt. A bloody Frank is driving the as-yet-unnamed blonde sitting next to him. Frank swerves at the wheel again. He's at risk of falling asleep, but won't turn the wheel over to her. She says it's to prove a point, how very male of him. As the sun rises, they pull into the Tides Motor Inn, Larkville, Ohio. She's got to go get a room and not do anything stupid. He hands her a stack of $20 bills, more than a bit bloody. She wakes Debbie, the desk clerk, who isn't happy. Debbie says the room is for last night, not tonight, even though today is today. Eighty bloody dollars later, and the van is pulling into room number seven in the back. In the room, a little booze helps ease Frank's pains, though he needs help taking off his boots. He's Pete, she's Rachel. They head to the bathroom where he cleans the puncture wound on his behind with whiskey. The bullet is still in there, not too deep, and he needs help getting it out. She cleans her hands, then goes digging. She pulls the bloody slug out and is reluctant to sew up his wound while we see the blood ooze out. She claims she's just a college student, not connected to the violence at all, and her parents are going to wonder about her. Back in the room, Frank's not in a talking mood. He zip-ties her hands to the bed so she won't run and takes the other bed. Time for 40 winks, but she's calling out. He duct-tapes her mouth shut, and it's sleepy time. The credits show the episode's written by Steve Lightfoot, and directed by Jim O'Hanlon, both just like the prior episode. A few hours later, Frank's rested up and releases her from bed, but keeps her hands bound. He wants to know who attacked her at the bar and why they're coming after her. She claims she's an innocent, but he notes that she's had ample chances to run. He takes from her jeans two rolls of oldie-time film, and she says she doesn't know what's on them. They're coming for Frank and Rachel both, and he's prepared to kill them. She chastises him for being angry and, er, unsustainable. She also wonders if he was eager to jump into the fight. He binds her and leaves again. He goes to the check-in desk, getting the room near the one Rachel got, then returns to her with soda and a sandwich and a crowbar. The first two are for her. The crowbar is for the closet wall. That night, he spies baddies watching the van. We spy goons of the ilk of last episode who want to finish the job. He gives Rachel a gun, ostensibly full of bullets, and turns his back to her. She pulls the gun but cannot fire. The van crew gets out, the lady taking the lead. The goons break in, finding the room empty. The bed, the closet, the shower are all empty. But they get mowed down when Frank enters from behind the closet, from the other room. He exchanges fire with the last goon in the goon van while Rachel listens, shaking with each shot. Then the bullets stop and she pokes her head out. A female goon opens the door, but Frank cold cocks her. 
They walk through the room filled with bodies, Frank taking the knocked out female to his van. She awakens, stealing his gun, shooting at him. He waits for the clip to empty, then watches her as she woozily wanders to her van and machine gun. He shoots her in the leg and asks if she's ready to talk. Rachel steals the van, but both are interrupted by the Larkville County Sheriff's. Surprisingly, Frank and Rachel are taken in. At the sheriff's office, a local sawbones is sewing up the female goon, who was hit in meat only by a lucky or well-placed shot. At a sheriff's desk, Rachel tells the tale of a maniac gunman who kidnapped her. Sheriff Harden seems less than impressed about this kid who was in the wrong place at the wrong time. She's just 16 after all. Shouldn't he call child services? In the interrogation room, Frank swears he has no broken bones and refuses medical treatment. Harden wants answers while the female goon and Rachel are booked alike. Fingerprints taken and cheeks swabbed for DNA. Frank gets the same. In the hospital, Billy Russo is dreaming about having his face ruined and awakens to Agent Madani staring him down. He's restrained and she's smiling. He says he doesn't know her. In walks Dr. Dumont, who's been working with Billy these past few months, and he's not faking about memory loss. Dumont asks Madani to leave. He needs his therapy, and Dumont's only focused on his health. They've been using an <clears throat> jigsaw metaphor to deal with the broken memories. It can all be put back together, and Dumont doesn't expect Madani to understand about poor old Billy. Madani leaves, and Billy rages, unable to remember her, or even talk about his past with Dumont. Dumont removes his restraints and tells him that he shot Madani in the head. Later, he takes his meds, turning his back to Dumont so she can't see him removing his mask. They inventory his symptoms, working out a bit, unable to sleep, terrible dreams of a skull coming for him, blood breaking glass, the pain in his face. She notes there's no medical reason for his face to hurt. The last thing he remembers is being in the barracks with his unit, hanging out with Frank, his brother-in-arms. He can't remember things, won't accept the facts. Elsewhere, Madani's out to dinner that night with Rafi, who's going to deliver tough love to her, specifically about her visits to Russo. He's worked hard to keep the Department of Homeland Security out of the Russo situation. She says Russo is faking. He tries to keep her on task. She walks out of dinner. Later, Madani dreams of Russo sneering over her. She's awoken by a call from Pete. Castiglione? He needs help. She says not to call again. Elsewhere, Beth is asleep in a hospital bed. Pilgrim is there, scooping out her get-well cards, and she doesn't know him. He notes the card from her son. He's happy she's got a boy with a strong name like Rex. He wants to talk about other names, not the ones on the cards, but the one of the man at the bar. He says God spared her, sits on her bed as the music thumbs a heartbeat-like sound. She gives up the name, Pete, but Pilgrim senses there is more. She gives the last name, Castiglione. Pilgrim will say a prayer for her healing. At the Barside Motel, Pilgrim and a lackey check out Pete's old room. It's spotless. He really might have been just a bystander. Courtesy the miracle of technology, DMV records pop up. He's clean. Pilgrim wonders if technology is a miracle and fiddles with Frank's wedding ring. Later, close up on Pilgrim's wedding ring, being told that Frank's, Pete's, prints have just entered the system. Back at the sheriff's office, Frank tells Sheriff Harden he didn't murder anyone. Those goons just died of terminal stupidity. Frank whispers that to protect the town, 
Harden needs to let Frank, Pete, and Rachel go. Harden declines, and Frank isn't surprised. Outside, Pilgrim looks on. Pete, let's talk bad guys, and uh, a little difficult at times here, because uh, as you pointed out off mic, not all these characters get introduced by name ever, so we've cheated a bit calling Pilgrim that by what was said on screen. Uh, some other people, we might have to make up names as we go along, but where should we start? Let's begin with one we know, Matt, Billy Russo. I think this is a really measured uh, introduction for Billy Russo 2.0, for where we're headed with Jigsaw. Pete, we get the comic book service thing of, we're using the dun-dun-dun Jigsaw technique. Wait, what was that? Yes, Jigsaw technique, which was a creepy name when it was thought of for the comics, but we're going to retcon it as in putting back together his memories and his identity like a <gasps> Jigsaw. And in his Jigsaw mask, which is what you wear when you use the Jigsaw technique. <laughs> I I mean, I, look, it, it certainly is a, a manic performance here. It's well done by the actor, etc. I, I will say... If I'm Jim O'Halloran directing this episode, maybe we throw a little bit more light up on uh, Billy Russo's face so we can see his eyes through the mask, or we get a mask that's a little bit more form-fitting or has bigger eye holes or whatever, because uh, otherwise it's just dude that you can't see very well. But I did like the character affect, scripted, acted, whatever it was, whatever the, gen the genesis was, when he takes his pills to hide his uh, horrifically mangled face, he has to turn away from the lady doctor because... Uh, Nobody can view Billy Russo's looking less than his best. I took that as he doesn't want to be seen dribbling in front of Lady Doctor. Dribbling? Yeah. Like, like he, he can't he, close his mouth? Well, he he was taking the medicine and, you know, I think he he was. I think it's a little bit of a holdover to the way he was in season one, his appearance so important to him and that's been taken from him and he's, he's holding on to that. It gets to the question, which we'll talk about in our theory segment. Is this an act? Is this not an act that Madani um, feels is strongly the case? Well, certainly more about Billy in the theory segment. Uh, Pete, let's talk about Pilgrim who, uh, his sense of righteousness is only increased in this episode. I do wonder when a certain segment of the viewing population is going to be like, hey, wait a minute, they're making fun of me. But in the interim, Pilgrim setting that line of righteousness and the Lord as he, I don't know, does his bad and evil things. I love the dichotomy they've set up and it's delivered in such a way by Josh Stewart that it's really creepy you know, don't don't swear around the guy. Just give him the the information he needs to to go kill uh, Pete Castiglione. Um, that he gets the information at the end of the episode, and it, it's something he prayed on, and he has it. And and the menace that he shows with Beth in the hospital room, particularly when with Beth, when there's that. That bit of him checking out the cards, which, you know, we, of course, are reading as as uh, kind of quietly domineering, could be a passive act. Uh, but then there's that great through line of 
all the names he has seen on the card and it's delivered in such a way where it's like, oh, it's not just as a launching point for him to say, I want to talk about a name I don't know, but it has that quiet suggestion of, oh, and I know Aunt Susie's name and I know neighbor Fred's name and I know all their names in case I need to cause more trouble. Um, that's kind of all hidden his performance there. Of course, top of the pile, at least after Pete Castiglione, is the fact that he knows she has a son. He's happy that she had a son, implication not a girl, and uh, has a nice strong boy name like Rex. Rex, Dex? Come on, man. (laughs) (laughs) Hashtag it's all connected. Pete, next on the list, your list says Pilgrim's Tech Helper. I would like to give him... A, uh, a a a a temporary fantastic geek name, if I may. Can we call him Lieutenant Dan? You can call him whatever you want, man. Uh, the upshot of this character is he thinks technology's a miracle, and Pilgrim wants it all to come crashing down. Yes, that's a little creepy on Pilgrim's part. By the way, Pete, want to call the tech helper Lieutenant Dan because uh, he says F this and F that, or at least other naughty words that he can't say around Pilgrim. Um, I wonder, how about this way, Pete? I hope that we continue to see him uh, because I feel like in the one or two scenes he was in, he brought a pep and a uniqueness, even though it's like, hey, you're in three pages of this script and not in a scene with the Punisher, and might just be there for expositional purposes. Um, He brought a little pizzazz. He did. And for a show that the tone tends to run pretty dark, any lightness, particularly in the way of humor that we can get, is always appreciated. Pete, last on the list here, we can lump them all together. The attackers, the goons, uh, certainly led by Head Lady, um, the one that you know it didn't die uh but again a lethal force here and uh, i suspect some great stunt actors who've been called up to have lines on screen too and certainly making the most of it we were never gonna have something that would eclipse an episode later what took place in the roadhouse bathroom and proper but with Frank buying the other hotel room and making them join with the crowbar. I believe it was that he, he ripped the uh, passageway between them and made these uh, attackers look uh, childlike. And then, all right, we're going to put the woman in the back of the van, presumably to question, you know, because Rachel, air quotes there has given us nothing at this point. And then, uh, she gets up and, uh, then the cops just happen to show up all, uh, pushing us forward into the next chapter. That it is Pete. And, uh, let's turn to our next chapter. Let's talk some theories here. First one for me, when will Madani enter the fray? Surely she's not going to sit on the sidelines for the remaining, what, uh, 11 episodes. You would be hard-pressed to not believe she hasn't. She gets the one phone call um, Frank can make, uh, and then she's been visiting Russo twice a day to the point where our old pal Raffi's got to talk her down from that. And, you know, she's, she's sticking to her guns. She's the one who's not being believed. 
is Russo playing a game? We'll have to evaluate that next. But I think Madani's already in the game, Matt. Pete, next one from me. Uh, what is under Billy Russo's mask? Quick story I want to share. I know you know my uncle who tells stories from the comics of a, a Batman villain who I've not been able to find online, by the way. But he tells the story of a Batman uh, Batman's comic story where the villain is driven mad by his horrendously scarred face. He kind of is wearing a Phantom of the Opera style mask. And finally, when he gets that mask taken off, it's revealed that there is a small scratch one millimeter long on the side of his face. <laughs> um, so I just mentioned that by saying, I think I've seen something online to suggest that's not the case with Russo, but I want to at least get that in under there. What is under the mask? Is it a millimeter long surface scratch? It's, it's not that tiny. Uh, and there's plenty out there. I think the bigger issue with the mask and, um, I have, uh, somebody who reached out to us on uh, Twitter and talk about in a little bit, but we got a little bit of the Spider-Man green goblin effect going on here with the mask. Um, and still no explanation of your mask looks like this with squiggles and black portions and red portions and blue portions because insert story reasons. And we still haven't had that. Well, Pete, I know that sometimes you have your crystal ball and you see into the future. You sound a little down on the possibility of us getting a satisfying explanation. I think back to Daredevil season three where, you know, I think they they thought they did a better narrative job having us in no way see bullseye coming this guy who in his first scene throws stuff at people and bounces it off stuff and knocks them out dead or whatever um but when it gets down to the bullseye backstory everything stops it's this wonderful presentation this kind of weird presentation in black and white and sparse set dressing and whatnot um are you not optimistic of a sensible resolution in the future for this or is it just going to be yeah he wears a weirdo uh, therapy mask I don't know. Oh, uh, well, Pete, let's stick with Billy here. I think it's a, a, a theory on both our radars here. You know, brass tacks here. Is he faking? I don't think he's faking. I think Madani has convinced herself of this because she sees him as that liar that, you know, in her face just continued to say that he was what he was and not something different. Um, but I think the stories are going to intersect and when we really get rolling, it'll become apparent. I think I like that as the better answer better than yes, he is faking just because a, the idea has been planted in, in the audience's mind by Madani. So, okay, it could be, oh, no, there's a ticking time bomb. Hey, we need to stop the ticking time bomb. Uh, I think, however, it's a little bit better to say she's damaged too. Uh, I think there's more narrative fruit there, even with her on the on the side of good. I don't think we're going to have her tip into villain territory, but I like that as a better, as a better option. What other theories are on your radar? The character of the doctor strikes me as very interesting. It seems to me less that she's interested in his 
therapy or rehabilitation. And certainly the way that she's being portrayed, uh, the way they're dressing her, uh, smacks that there's something more going on. I did notice in one of the wider shots. Now, Pete, I, I, I'm certainly sympathetic to, to, you know, what women have to go through in terms of wearing, wearing heels and whatnot. But she looked a little wobbly on those heels, and they're tall heels with thin. I think she heel has things. a limp. She the actress or she the character? The character. It's it certainly. I mean. I think there, I agree with you that there's more to be done there. And it did cross my mind like, hey, if you have a shot where the actress is not doing great in, in the costume you gave her, you could either shoot it differently or take another take or notice it on the set and put, give her another, you know, another pair of shoes, that kind of thing. Uh, so maybe it is all in there on purpose. Um, but I do agree, too. There was just something about her that smacked of of like boy this is this is the case that you then write the book about and then it gets turned into the miniseries and then so on and so forth not you know get him his therapy but also in concert with justice the great thing but also the frustrating thing about what we have so far the the slow burn and we anticipate and we want to talk about these things i'm a little further than than matt is but um that they talk about Billy's uh, time in the barracks, that Frank comes up. Um, this woman would clearly be privy to more than she's just getting out of Billy right now. Um, and I honestly took that as a limp that this woman may have seen some time, uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, wherever, um, and that this could all be part of the story. This certainly is such a uh, such a sparse, I'll say universe. I obviously don't mean it in the MCU sense, but you know, it's Frank in the Midwest. It's a little bit of story back in New York. This is not kind of spanning the ages and spanning multiple uh, multiple multiple locations beyond those two. I think there's got to be something to generate a little bit more oomph. Um, and I think it could come from a character such as, uh, such as the doctor, particularly as we kind of have Russo on kind of story time out for now, you know, he hasn't escaped. He hasn't assembled a crew, both things I dare say, you know, are going to happen sometime before the end of the season. We don't have Madani leading the chase. We don't have her yelling at Rafi saying, see, I told you he's bad news or whatever. So in the interim, we kind of need something to get us from, I don't know, episode two, three, four, a little mini arc there until until this show does a big prison slash hospital breakout or something like that. How about Beth giving up Pete? I think Beth read the situation properly, which is this pilgrim guy is implicitly threatening her, threatening her son, threatening her loved ones, and she tries, she tries to keep private things private, but he's pushing and you know what? You throw a name out there, you throw the last name out there. I think she regrets having done it, but I think that probably she's okay with that fact just because she needed to take care of herself and her own. And then that this film has been seen now by Frank, not the contents of the film, that, but that he has it 
before we had mentioned in the first episode about photos. So these are undeveloped. What is up with them? What's on them? What is Rachel hiding? I would most appreciate if this is kind of like a very unique brand new story you know if it ends up being that though pilgrim is a right-wing fundamentalist ready to kill people in order to spread peace and the word um you know it's he's ex hydra or they're selling alien guns you know i hope it's none of that it's just its own its own kind of duplicitous thing part of the strength of season one of the punisher was foregoing some of that you know, kind of MCU emphasis on the U, the universe, that kind of space razzmatazz magic, you know, stuff. And to just keep it homegrown anger, keep it kind of really close to the real world. So hopefully they replicate that here with, again, as I said in the first episode, this story that is moving forward in time, but also as we understand past events, bit by bit, stories moving backwards as well. The Larkville County Sheriff in Ohio here, Matt, has Pete, Rachel, and one of these many, many, many female attackers uh, sent by Pilgrim to bring this girl back. What are they going to do? And how did this doctor they summon know this is all bad news? You should turn this over to the stateies. Well, I'll answer the second part first. I think I think that as this small town doctor, you know, I imagine it's maybe a semi-rural community or or certainly kind of I don't want to say out in the middle of nowhere, but I think that she's seen enough in terms of hunting accidents or, you know, the the knife slipped or whatever it is, that kind of variety of things as opposed to say, you know, whatever, you know, inner city ER where you see either gunshot wounds or you see you know i fell down the stairs or you know things like that i think that she's seen this breadth of stuff enough to know um to appreciate the fact that the the woman attacker had the the wound which was very well placed or lucky and then you get that line to come back uh there for frank and it's just kind of that sense of this might be a small town but this is a big town this is a large large problem that has walked through their doors and maybe the county sheriff's office is not equipped to handle it. Um, the, the sheriff, of course, ignoring that, setting up what is almost certainly going to be a big and bloody showdown in episode 203. Pete, let's take to the internet now for some feedback about uh, The Punisher. We have uh, two tweets from Andre Yeager. That's at Dr. Polo, 1983. Uh, he gives us some credit. Good call on the jigsaw mask. Uh, just in terms of its general origin there. And then uh, he also said in response to episode 201, seemed like the only bar patrons trying to help a screaming girl were women. Somehow the bloody bars slash bathroom fight was fun. On paper, that much violence against women shouldn't work. But boy, it did. Yeah, we talked before about the difficulty that might have come across in portraying that. And how smart they were to block it the way they did so that it doesn't come across that, you know, uh, Frank is beating up these women that, you know, they're armed, there's more of them and, uh, pretty dangerous at that. So, uh, thanks Andre. Yeah. They, they, you know, as we said in the last episode, 
the the show is treating these women as assassins first and not women uh not with any stereotypes attached and i think that that in and of itself becomes the probably the biggest strength in the fight another tweet pete from at dj black that's at dj underscore blak 357 he goes on twitter by also uh, the name aka frank castle so Wait, wait, Frank Castle writing into us about Frank Castle. I mean, come on, Matt. It's we say it's all connected, but now it's really all connected. <laughs> well, aka Frank Castle writing into us about Agent Madani. Uh, he says Agent Madani is so badass this season. I love it. Like she's yes. like she should be an agent for a team that deals with crazy special individuals on a weekly basis. <laughs> hmm, emoji. And uh, I, I, I dare say I have to agree. Let's get let's get some crossover here. The only thing more badass than season one Madani is season two longer hair Madani. Oh, kind of despondent Madani, yeah. Right, like, shut up, Raffi. You can't be my other dad. <laughs> Don't yell at me, dad, even though you care for me and this is not a gender dynamic nor age dynamic. It's just a co-worker trying to set things straight. Well, Pete, though Frank Castle might be uh, in deep doo-doo there, as I dare say more assassins are going to surround the sheriff's office in the next episode. Luckily, we have our team surrounding us, but they're all good guys. Those are the people who go to patreon.com slash fantastic geek and keep the podcast moving along. Everybody who contributes gets access to exclusive podcast content. And uh, like Pilgrim says, no profanity. Indeed, Pete, we keep it clean. We keep it clean for those patrons and for all out there who depend on Fantastic Geek. But Pete, you can be depended on for always returning a tweet. How can people be in touch with you? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 10,306 followers. Can't be wrong. And while I'm personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, do be in touch with the podcast. Comment on FantasticGeek.com. Check us out on Twitter, Instagram, and Gmail, where we are Fantastic Geek as well. But wait, Pete, there's more. Facebook.com slash Fantastic Geek with a PH, all one word, like it today. Well, Pete, we will be back with our Punisher podcast on Wednesday. Going to keep things moving fast and furious here in the life of Frank Castle. So with that, I will say adios to all our listeners and give you the final word. You check in before my night shift finishes. It's not today. <laughs>